Welcome to HAF's podcast, That's So Hindu. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, I speak with Parth Parihar. Parth is a member of the Board of Trustees of the Hindu Students Council and a PhD candidate in economics at Princeton University. Earlier this spring, he organized, along with Dr. Indu Vishwanathan, a conference on Hindu phobia at Rutgers University, which brought together a wide range of speakers on the topic. We discussed the nature of Hindu phobia today, how this is affecting students on college campuses, and much more. So first of all, uh, thanks for doing this today. What is Hindu phobia? How do you define it? Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Matt. So um, as uh, I think you know, uh, we hosted a conference on Hindu phobia called Understanding Hindu Phobia uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And as part of that, scholars actually developed a definition of Hindu phobia. So uh, the nice thing is I can just read it out for you. Um, So our working definition of Hindu phobia is that Hindu phobia is a set of antagonistic, destructive and derogatory attitudes and behaviors towards Sanatana Dharma and Hindus that may manifest as fear, prejudice or hatred. Hindu phobic rhetoric reduces the entirety of Sanatana Dharma to a rigid, oppressive and regressive tradition. Pro-social and reflexive aspects of Hindu traditions are ignored or attributed to outside non-Hindu influences. This discourse actively erases and denies the persecution of Hindus while disproportionately painting Hindus as violent. These stereotypes were used to justify the dissolution, external reformation, and demonization of the range of indigenous Indic knowledge traditions known as Sanatana Dharma. The complete range of Hindu phobic acts extends from microaggressions to attempts at genocide. Hindu phobic projects include the destruction and desecration of Hindu sacred spaces, aggressive and forced proselytization of Hindu populations, targeted violence towards Hindu people, community institutions and organizations, and finally, ethnic cleansing and genocide. So our definition aimed to provide a framework through which people could think about a lot of the different examples that they see in the world out there, whether it's targeted towards them or other Hindu people as part of kind of the same macro phenomenon, and also think about what is ex- what exactly was happening there and why it was happening. What do you say to people? And I've seen this. I saw this before your conference and, and I've seen it afterwards. And I, if I was on Twitter during the middle of it, I bet it was happening on Twitter too. There's some people that say Hindu phobia doesn't exist. What do you, what do you say to them? Well, I think, I think, I think those people can be kind of grouped into two different buckets. So I think, I think people who are skeptical of the idea of Hindu phobia always like to begin with some of the most pernicious and virulent examples of both rhetorical as well as I would say physical Hindu phobia. So in terms of physical Hindu phobia, the examples that I always kind of think about are um, things that have happened in the U.S. recently. So, for example, in 2016, I went to visit a cow sanctuary in Pennsylvania, the Lakshmi Cow Sanctuary. Um, And uh, there, the owner, Shastriji, um, very nice man, very devoted uh, Krishna uh, Bhak, um, had a severed cow's head placed on his uh, front stoop. And later on, once the police had determined who actually was responsible for the crime, these people confessed to having done it because they knew um, kind of what role the 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 cow or gomata had for uh, the Hindu religion and the Hindu faith. And they knew that placing a severed cow head 
on his porch would give him the message that he's not welcome there because of his religion. So people here are explicitly acknowledging that Hindu phobia is at the root of the motive for their crime and are linking it back to xenophobia. And that's a theme that we have often seen in the U.S. specifically as to how Hindu phobia manifests um, from, I would say, the late 19th century, early 20th century onward. In terms of, um, and of course, there have also been attacks recently on Hindu mandirs, like the one that happened at the BAPS um, Louisville Monday. I don't need to tell you that um, you're from HAF. But um, the, uh, as far as rhetorical Hindu phobia goes, kind of the more virulent examples I would say would be things like Hinduism is a form of spiritual fascism, um, or we cannot reform society until we dismantle or destroy Hinduism. And, and this is basically verbatim from an event that was held at the University of Michigan in 2019. So I think when people are confronted with this idea of destroying a religion or destroying a spiritual system in its totality, denying therefore that there is anything that can be quote unquote salvaged from it, denying that there's anything pro-social or reflexive within the tradition that is actually valuable, but that instead at its core, Hinduism is an evil ideology that needs to be exterminated from this earth. I think once you allow people to confront that, the people who are genuinely skeptical because they've never seen examples or they're not paying attention, those people will perhaps want to rethink their prior opinion. Now, the second category of people are the ones who I think are just resistant to the idea because they are themselves Hinduphobic. So a lot of the people who deny Hindu phobia also, for example, will deny the persecution of Kashmiri Hindus or Kashmiri Pandits uh, in 1989 and preceding that period as well. Um, so they often deny violence that was targeted towards Hindu people uh, as a result, as a direct result of the religion or the faith that they practiced. Um, and so I think a lot of times these examples of people who deny Hindu phobia are themselves kind of one of the biggest examples of Hindu phobia, because if you airbrush and deny violence that's targeted towards people, what you are essentially doing is that you're dehumanizing them on the basis of their religion. If you don't recognize targeted violence towards a specific religious community because of the identity of that community, and you're resistant to the idea of acknowledging Hindu phobia, then that, excel, that itself is, 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 I think, one of the most virulent forms of Hindu phobia. I want to get onto the details of the conference and I have some other mm -hmm. questions, but some of the things that you said there brought up some stuff for me. It seems to me in my work at HAF over the past several years that there's, and this goes to the second category of people that sort of categorize Hinduism as I think your words were an evil social construct or something. It's irredeemably yeah. bad. Yeah. And these same groups of people, and I don't want to give them more airtime than they already do because they're very good at getting attention, um, it, get a lot of sympathy from people that, frankly, in a U.S. political context, I personally have a lot in common with who are self-described political yeah. progressives, socially, economically, all sorts of things. Why do you have an opinion on and any insight into why that alliance exists? Sure. So I think one of the things that uh, I've recognized more and more, at least in the last two years, especially, is that Hindu phobia is often packaged as a moral good. 
So the idea basically goes that, you know, as you said, Hinduism is thought of as an evil social construct. It's thought, it's thought of something that is inherently and irredeemably uh, evil, that's bigoted, uh, that uh, works against the rights of women, that works against the rights of Dalit people, that works against the rights of, of other religious groups. And so if you internalize that belief, then the result is kind of this idea that, um, you know, once you internalize this idea that Hinduism is inherently backwards, then you also, as a direct consequence of that, will believe that it's pro-social and moral to work to dismantle Hinduism, right? Because if after all, if it's irredeemably evil, if it's irredeemably, you know, misogynistic, oppressive, et cetera, then there's no reason for it to continue to exist. Sure. And yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I, I get that. And there's, there, there's a logic in that. I don't agree with the logic, but right. if you start from point A, you can get to point B, you see it. But then what, why do you think it's okay to say those things about Hinduism? That's irredeemable. That if you said this about Islam, yeah, people would rightly call you Islamophobic. That you that you were bigoted, but yet you say that about Hinduism, and all of a sudden it's enlightened progressivism. So I think there's a few different reasons. I think one of the biggest reasons is that there hasn't been enough pushback from our own community within academic spaces specifically. So one of the things that I noticed in particular was that going back and reading a lot of the articles actually right before this interview was that whenever there was kind of a controversy about an organization, it could be any organization, uh, I think criticizing scholars um, of Hinduism who are from an etic perspective. So people who aren't themselves Hindu, who study Hinduism from, let's say, a Western lens or a Western perspective, um, that that critique was seen as an attack on academic freedom. Whereas if you have scholars from within the academy who often criticize these same people, they just are ignored. And so I think it's important for Hindu people to recognize that it's important to criticize these spaces from within rather than without. Uh, criticism from without is often characterized as coming from, from this like Hindu nationalist right-wing perspective and point of view. And it gives people the opening to kind of paint everybody who is critiquing the very, very Hindu phobic narrative that exists about Hinduism within the academy as somehow tied to these outside fringe right-wing violent groups. Now, going back to the earlier point that I was also making, I think this whole cycle of viewing Hinduism as inherently barbaric is also self-reinforcing because once you internalize that it's, that it is barbaric and that it's pro-social to work to dismantle it, you also begin to believe that anybody who disagrees with you is therefore also inherently tied up in the oppression that Hinduism is perpetuating. So they'll begin to also see people who speak about Hindu phobia and who speak up against kind of this dominant master narrative about, about Hinduism as themselves complicit. So this feedback loop or this endogenous cycle of Hindu phobia is also something that I think gives people the confidence to be able to go out there and, and speak about what, what we would all kind of consider Hindu phobia. So in your last answer, you, 
you led into a, a, another question I had. What what do you think is the state of Hindu phobia in academia? On one hand, we have some professors who I won't give more publicity to, who frankly seem antagonistic towards Hinduism, Hindus, and the things that they purport to study and have devoted their career to. Do you see that balanced out with some more positive voices in academia that people should be aware of? So I think there is some emergent work on um on Hinduism from a from a decoloniality point of view, by which I mean that there are scholars in the academy who critique the way in which Hinduism and India in particular was narrativized, uh, I would say during the British Raj and by people who studied Hinduism in India kind of in its in its early days and its introduction into the West. So um, you can think about the Nay Science uh, by Vishwad Luri and Joy Deepakshi, which is a great um, kind of look into the ways in which German Indology operated from a very bigoted and very particular particularistic lens. Um, you can also think about Arvind Sharma, who is part of our conference as well, and his um, work, The Ruler's Gaze, which studies the ways in which the British um, viewed Hinduism in India from a uh, an Orientalist lens. So he, he, he specifically applies Edward Said's yeah. lens of Orientalism to study um, Hinduism and India's encounter with the British. Yeah, it's a um, for for listeners. Sorry to interrupt. It's actually a fabulous book. I read it a couple months ago. Um, I highly encourage everyone to pick it up. Ruler's Gaze by Professor Arvind Sharma up at McGill. It's great. Sorry, please continue. No, 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 please. Yeah, I I can't recommend the book myself as much either. So it's it's a really good read. Um, there's there's other people who have done similar works as well. Nicholas Dirk's um, Cast of Mind. Uh, he also has another book that's that's uh, that's more broad. That's not just about the ways in which caste was narrativized, but is is about the whole British Empire as well. Um, there's Ronald Inden. So there's other scholars who have done work um, from this decolo- decoloniality perspective, essentially critiquing the ways in which um, I think colonialism has has often colored. Uh, the West's gaze on Hinduism, which which often has also colored, uh, you know, academia's lens on Hinduism. I, I think it's it's undeniable and is not objectionable to point out that many of the scholars who study Hinduism in India are themselves of and from the West, and therefore they carry that lens and that bi- and that I wouldn't say bias, but but that that perspective with them as they study as they study India and Hinduism. And it is important to point out what shortcomings uh, they may face in, in doing so. So I think, I think there is, there is that kind of balance from the decolonial decoloniality point of view. And of course, there are also many emic scholars uh, of Hinduism from within the Academy. Um, Jeffrey Long, um, who was also part of our conference and is also on um, HAF's board is another great example of, of such a scholar. Uh, just to clarify here, Jeffrey Long is a board of advisor member board of it's not on the board of directors um we've he's been on the podcast before and uh and i'm glad he you know he spoke at the conference it was great to see um before i keep pushing off questions about the conference itself because it, there're just so many intermediate topics how do you see right. this this hindu phobia on campus coming from academia um affecting students do, does it does it trickle down and how, and how does it Sure. So I guess there's a couple different ways in which it would affect students. So I guess in particular, there's this now a newer movement that actually studies not just Hinduism itself, but also studies Hindu organizations and uh, that also includes Hindu student organizations and Hindu um, diaspora itself. So this movement, therefore, kind of puts students themselves 
as the lens of, of, of what's being studied. And I think that's, that's kind of scary. Um, but just, but to just take a step back at, at, at that more newer development, I think, you know, as you go into college, I think a lot of Hindu students are really bombarded with a lot of things that they didn't know uh, in terms of the ways in which their traditions are narrativized and the ways their traditions are represented. And they're often unprepared and perplexed at the ways in which um, their own spiritual tradition is being um, taught to their own peers. And this elicits a lot of different reactions from, from the students. So I guess one of the ways that people often react is they internalize the critique themselves. Uh, and this is something that you see very, very commonly, even in, even in students who are actually devout Hindus themselves in, in kind of every other way. The way that I've kind of thought about this is I'm a theoretical economist. So there's this famous paper um, by Ottaviani and Sorensen that's about how people make decisions when they're in committees. So it's the idea is really clear. So I'll just I won't go into too much detail. But basically, if you're making a decision in a team and each team member is going through one by one and by one and giving their opinion about the project, if you're the last person to go, and everybody else on the team or a majority of the people on the team have said that they think the project should go forward. Even if you believe that it shouldn't, you should, if you're kind of rational, you should think about what they said before you as a signal about the high quality of the project. In other words, the fact that other people are going along with it and the fact that they are experts in this domain themselves should make you more confident that the project is in fact something that should be followed through on. The only way you wouldn't is if you were very, very confident in your own beliefs to begin with, right? So oftentimes people will see the pre-existing dominant opinions and will just go along with them. And this idea is often replicated also, I think, in the university setting where you see a very dominant opinion and it's important to want to get things right. And because all of these scholars and all of these academics and all of these institutions, even student organizations, have all of this credibility behind them it's very tempting for students to want to just agree and internalize that, that belief, especially because they themselves don't have that level of confidence in their own traditions or in their own knowledge of their traditions to be able to refute it. So they just internalize it and go along with it. The other reactions that I think are perhaps more common among students that are in Hindu students council chapters and that I've seen also on our national team is that people will often recognize that, yes, there's something wrong and I don't agree with what's being said. So they don't internalize the belief themselves, but at the same time, they don't exactly know how to respond. So it's, it's this very um, kind of disconcerting and uncomfortable position to be in. And I think there's often an overwhelming sense of shame that washes over people when they hear that because they, they know instinctively that what that's what being said is wrong and yet there's so much apparent scholarship and apparent evidence that is used uh, against Hinduism and against um, Hindu people that it's often difficult for people to respond um, from an academic uh, point of view to counter the scholar. And in truth, it shouldn't be the responsibility of students to be uh, in that position of having to respond anyway. It should be the responsibility of other academics and other scholars within that uh, field to be responsible for doing so. The problem arises because South Asian studies and 
Hindu studies in particular is often very hostile towards members of our own community who, who seek to study Hinduism itself, which leads to this kind of inherent cyclical problem where you have this giant problem of Hindu phobia that exists within South Asian studies. And there doesn't seem to be any way of remedying it because other voices are kind of not encouraged to enter that space and are in fact actively discouraged or intimidated from doing so. How do you think students can develop that confidence? I, I, it was a great example, you know, being the last person to make a, have to make a decision on a project after seeing all these other people express their opinion. I think that's, that's really good. How, how do you think students can speak up, can be that last person to say, Hey, wait, maybe we need to think about this differently. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think what's the most powerful um, and I don't know if it's a cliche, but for me, it was, it was having a community around me of like-minded people. So I think joining a Hindu student group, joining a Hindu students council chapter, if you're a student, if you're a high school student or a college student is really important because I think one of the things that, that leads people to, um, like in my example, right, go along with the, the rest of the crowd is because you think you're the only person who has a different opinion. It's when you communicate with other people and recognize that other people who are reasonable, smart, articulate, intelligent people as well, who have a scholarly bent to them, have this, this differing opinion that, that goes against the grain, that goes against the dominant narrative. That's when you yourself become more confident in speaking, speaking up and speaking out about your own beliefs and your own convictions. So I think, I think having that sense of community is really, really important for students. So I think joining Hindu students council is like kind of the, the first thing I would say, I would also say that you can avail yourself of resources that the community has already created around education, right? So there's so many different resources where people can go to actually learn about the ways in which Hinduism is misrepresented, for example, in their high school history textbook, or learn about the ways in which um, kind of the media skews its portrayal of Hindu people uh, and of India. Uh, so for example, like the work of Umsi Jaluri, a media studies scholar. So I, I think a lot of these different avenues students have actually begun to access. And I would encourage people to empower themselves with the information and the knowledge that's kind of required to be able to counter a lot of these really empty narratives that exist about Hinduism. I mean, people basically need to be armed with these, these types of counter examples to be able to counter what is in essence a very easily disproven uh, argument. If it's so easily disproven, how is it so persistent? Well, that's a good question. So <laughs> that's a really good question. So, I, I, I ask because I don't, I genuinely don't know the answer. And if I ask enough people, maybe I'll, I'll get, get some more insight because it baffles my mind. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I think it is. So in economics, we would say that people don't understand the correlation between signals that they get. And let me just kind of put that into actual English words. So basically there are all of these sources of information, right? persistence that that's the word you said that tell us the same thing that hinduism is problematic that there are serious issues with the religion um that hindu people are often violent uh, that there's a genocide happening in india etc all of these things but all of these sources of information are all correlated in the sense they all emanate from the same kind of perspective or point of view 
And a lot of these perspectives also have the root in the way in which the, the, the white Western gaze first kind of came to India and came to saw, came to see, sorry, excuse me, Hindus and Hindu people. So I think it's really important to understand the ways in which the British used Hindu phobia to justify the British Raj. In particular, they spread tropes about Hinduism as being violent and misogynistic in order to convince an audience at home that it was necessary to expend a huge amount of political and governance capital on this project of civilizing India uh, through colonization. And these tropes included, for example, Sati um, and Tuggy, and um, also other tropes about Hinduism as being an unscientific and inferior religion. And, you know, a lot of historical work has actually been done already to disprove uh, that these tropes actually had any empirical validity to them. Uh, for example, the work of Indrani Mukherjee and the work of uh, Minakshi Jain, who was also part of our conference, um, show that Sati was shown to be something that was prevalent in West Bengal by the British, but there actually weren't any recorded instances of Sati in Bengal before the British came. They were all concentrated within Rajasthan. And indeed, the own Indian government's records after independence also indicate that Sati was not a prevalent practice in West Bengal, that all of these um, kind of incidents happened in, or most of them happened in Rajasthan. So this type of historical record clearly shows that facts were manipulated, things were blown way out of proportion to show that Hindu people were these heathens that, need, that needed to be civilized. Oftentimes these types of narratives about Hindu people continue to persist, obviously in a much more nuanced way. But if you believe, right, that these are true because they're coming from reliable sources, then it becomes very difficult for you to disprove or disbelieve what is being said about Indian Hinduism. And conversely, if you disagree, it becomes very difficult to convince someone that they have the wrong idea in mind. Because after all, if all of these reliable sources are the ones who are telling you that this is what's actually happening in India, then it becomes very difficult to, to try and convince them otherwise. This difficulty in persuasion is not something that's unique to just this, um, uh, right, just to Hinduism and this, this whole issue. It's also something that persists in political misinformation, um, something that's more common in the political spectrum in general. For example, people say that, you know, vaccines will cause autism, vaccines are dangerous, Bill Gates put a microchip in the COVID vaccine, all of these things are easily disproven. And yet this belief is also persistent, although it doesn't come from reliable sources, but once people internalize the logic and the belief, it becomes very hard to persuade them otherwise. We've mentioned it now four or five times. Let's, let's get to the impetus for wanting for me wanting you to have, be on this podcast. It, it, give me the details on the Hindu phobia conference. It's recording this May 10th. It was several, a couple of weeks ago. Um, Tell me what exactly what happened, your inspiration for starting it, and if and how people can view a recording of it. Sure. So I guess I'll start with the genesis of why we wanted to do the conference itself. So uh, this Hindu Understanding Hindu Phobia conference was convened by the Rutgers chapter of the Hindu Students Council. And many of the students at Rutgers felt that the atmosphere on their university campus was especially hostile towards Hindu students um, and towards Hinduism as a religion itself. 
So they decided that they wanted to kind of portray the ways in which um, Hinduism was being misrepresented, was being portrayed as this violent, bigoted religion. Um, and why that this why this was wrong. I mean, it sounds really straightforward, right, to us. Um, but I think to an audience that's not aware of everything that's happening, it is something new. It is something that needs to be said, and it is something that needs to be explained. And so understanding Hindu phobia was the student's attempt at trying to get people from not just a Hindu background to come and listen to what the scholars had to say, but also to get people from different backgrounds. So we had many high school students from, from HSC bring their guidance counselors, bring their teachers who teach um, India and Hinduism world history, right? To this conference so that they were aware of what biases may be percolating into their own curriculum and their own ways of teaching that they don't even recognize it as Hindu phobia because I mean, if you don't know, of course, there's no reason for you, right, to um to, to see it that way. Um similarly, we also wanted to invite university uh university administrators and other allies as well from uh, from from other communities because it's important for not just Hindu people, of course, but also people from other faith traditions, other backgrounds to also see what's happening. And I think one of the things that's most powerful is that they can hopefully start to see the commonalities that exist between Hindu phobia and the anti-religious or anti-racial bigotries that exist um, for other communities as well. I think there's many, many similarities. And in terms of why we, well, why we did it in this specific format of inviting scholars um, to speak about different aspects of Hindu phobia, it goes back to something I said earlier, which is that oftentimes when, um, you know, Hindu people and organizations who are outside of academia critique the way that academic Hindu phobia manifests, those same people aren't demonized. Um, and it's very unfortunate, but, but that dynamic exists of painting people who aren't in academia as, as, as being kind of at the fringe or being part of a violent Hindutva or, or Hindu nationalist or whatever have you uh, movement, even though they're American and that idea is xenophobic, it still has its cachet and its traction. So that's why we wanted to have scholars specifically respond to this um, academic Hindu phobia, because I think it's very powerful when it comes from within uh, the academy. So we had scholars speaking about um, one theme that we've talked a lot about the way the British Raj um, colors a lot of the perspectives that Western scholars and Western people in general, the Western media has on India and Hinduism. Um, Professor Sharma, again, specifically presented on that. We also had Professor Jeffrey Long actually present our definition of Hindu phobia that I talked about at the beginning of this conversation and also explain why Hindu phobia is different from genuine criticism of Hinduism, which I think people often conflate and therefore think that whenever Hindu people speak about Hindu phobia as a real phenomenon, what we're doing is we're just trying to stifle criticism or academic freedom, which is not the case at all. Um, and then, of course, we also had presentations about the history of Hindu phobia, uh, the way that it manifests on campuses today through specific examples, naming a lot of the micro uh, sub phenomena through which it materializes and is realized. Uh, so I, th I think in, in general, the conference was very um, successful in getting people to see the connections that exist between the different manifestations of Hindu phobia and giving people a framework through which to see all of this. So 
you also asked how people can watch um, the conference if they weren't able to attend. So all of the conference videos are now uploaded onto the Hindu Students Council uh, YouTube page and can be viewed as a playlist. I have one more question that you hinted at or, you know, led up to whether you intended to or not. And we've mentioned the terms a couple of times in this. You mentioned Hindutva, Hindu nationalism. Mm -hmm. And what do you think and how do you see the overlaps occurring between anti-Hindu sentiment as a religion and sentiment against politics, politicians, political situations in India? It seems to me that there's overlap between Hindu phobia and anti-Hindu sentiment with, with how criticism of the government of Israel, for example, mm-hmm. can overlap with anti-Semitism. They don't yes. always, but they can. And what, what do you, how do you parse that? What is anti-Hindu sentiment, Hindu phobia, and criticism of Indian politics? How do those overlap and how are those playing out in America today? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And I totally echo the connection you made between um, I think the connection between anti-Semitism and Hindu phobia, as well as to a large extent, Islamophobia in in the in the in the sense that oftentimes when, um, you know, Jewish students or Jewish people in general or Muslim students or Muslim people in general speak about Islamophobia or anti-Semitism, they're often kind of accused of 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 of. Um, of, you know, being, being by different, by different groups in the U S of being agents of violent ideologies or violent agendas, whether that's Zionism or whether that's Islamism, et cetera. Right. So the same thing happens to Hindu people as well. Now to answer your question about, um, specifically the difference between criticism of the Indian government and Hindu phobia and why these things are often conflated One of the things that I noticed specifically was that a lot of the reasons why people are often hesitant to recognize persecution against Hindu people, um, whether it's, for example, the Kashmiri Pandit ethnic cleansing or whether it's the Bengali Hindu genocide um, whose 50 year um, anniversary is being observed. Right. Those types of things are often genuinely resisted because people believe that the Hindu nationalists will be emboldened. So to give a a concrete example, um, Professor Gary Bass, who's a historian at Princeton, uh, my institution, has written a very famous book uh, called The Blood Telegram, uh, which is named after Archer K. Blood, who was a diplomat uh, from the U.S. who was stationed in Bangladesh at the time of, 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 of the Bangladeshi Hindu genocide. Um, and in, in, in this book, Professor Bass notes that one of the reasons why the Indian government at the time was, was hesitant um, to actually talk about the fact that Hindus were being targeted was because they thought that the Janasangha, who is the um, ideological progenitor of the, now the BJP, would be emboldened. Uh, if they were if they were to name the fact that Hindu people were being specifically targeted. And he quotes D.P. Dhar, who was India's ambassador, I think, at the time to Russia, as as being very vocal in Moscow about all of the things that were happening to Hindu people in Bangladesh, but to his domestic audience and to, um, you know, his constituents back in, in India, this itself was 
was something that was was almost blacked out in its entirety. And so we often see this trope play itself out over and over and over again, where people talk about the fact that Kashmiri Hindus or Kashmiri Pandits are pawns in the hands of the Indian government or the Indian state. Um, so once again, this pain and, and, and Hindu suffering is being seen through the lens of, oh, if I recognize it, will it help the BJP or will it hurt the BJP? This whole thing views whether the BJP succeeds or fails as kind of the most important thing in, um, you know, in society. It's not even just in India, in, in society at, at large within the Indian diaspora. Um, and I think that's very unfortunate because it does dehumanize, uh, you know, Hindu people. Obviously, criticism of the Indian government and Hindu phobia don't have to go hand in hand per se. Um, but this connection often ensures that they they often do, uh, which which, again, is is I think one of the reasons why when when Hindu people speak up against or speak up, in fact, for um, kind of these persecuted minorities, they're often viewed as being members of the BJP or being Hindu nationalists. It's precisely because it gets at this it gets at this worldview that what they're saying is going to help the BJP. So they must be in league with them somehow. Right. So that idea continues to play itself out uh, even today, not just back in 1971. So this is a time when I like to let people, you know, plug their projects, how you can get in touch with people. If people want to watch the Hindu phobia conference, you said it's on the Hindu students council YouTube page. And if People listening to this um, want to find out more about Hindu Students Council, whether it's college or high school level. How can they do that? Sure. So you can go to www.hindustudentscouncil.org to learn more. Um, as you alluded to, Matt, we have chapters at the high school level, as well as in universities and colleges throughout the country in the U.S., as well as in Canada. And we also have several initiatives that we're currently running that are virtual. So feel free to ping us on our Facebook page, send us an email at info at hindustudentscouncil.org. And we'd be more than happy to get back to you with, with any of any and all of the opportunities that you can avail yourself of. So if people want to find out more about Hindu Students Council, whether it's at the high school level or college level, how can they do that? Sure. So you can go to our website, www.hindustudentscouncil.org, which has a lot of information about the initiatives that we currently run, as well as information about how you can start a chapter, how you can join our national leadership team. Um, and of course, we also have uh, our Facebook page, which you can find at www.facebook.com slash Hindu Students Council. Um, you can also send us an email at info at hindustudentscouncil.org. Um, and we'd be more than happy to, uh, you know, let you know about all of the initiatives that we're currently running. So to just give a brief rundown of some of the things that we currently have um, kind of available for students. Uh, currently, we run a weekly satsang, which is on Mondays at 8 p.m., I believe, where students can come together and speak about a variety of different topics. Usually there's an invited speaker who's either a spiritual figure from our community or is themselves a high school or college student uh, even um, to just lead a conversation about a particular topic that's of interest to, to Hindu students. You know, beyond that, of course, we also have events that we organize for um, Hindu students in general. So coming up in uh, the beginning of June, we have HSC commencement. So this is a commencement ceremony that's 
available for any Hindu student at any point in their education anywhere in the world. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're a Hindu student, you're more than welcome to, uh, you know, come to that event as well. Um, other initiatives that we run are often through a chapter level. So we run, um, you know, pujas, uh, religious celebrations, discussions at colleges, um, as well. And then we also have competitions that we do. So the HSC high school team is actually creating, we're very excited about this, a new Hindu debate competition um, for people to learn about Hinduism and to use that knowledge to debate each other. Um, we also ran a Hindu Jeopardy competition. So these are just some ways that we want people to learn more about Hinduism and, and kind of uh, express themselves as well. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org donate. And before you go, a quick message. The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this.